Hi, I'm Don Mills. Welcome to the Insights Podcast. And I'm David Campbell. And I'm Mark Legier. Welcome, guys. How are you doing? Pretty good. Very good, Mark. Excellent. Well, guys, there's been obviously the population growth discussion is a is a longstanding one in the region, and and in the last few months, uh, in particular around the p- pandemic, um, you know, we've seen people pack up and and move here from Ontario. I mean, I just actually just recently interviewed a, a couple that moved here from uh, Toronto uh, with their young family. And it, it, it seems like this conversation has become more topical during the pandemic because there's this hopeful sense that there's, there's room to grow here and there's a reason to move here. Uh, and this is really just the latest, um, you know, in, in a, you know, in a decades long conversation about this issue. So I thought it'd be good to have a conversation with you guys who have a sense of, of the historical trajectory on this conversation and are also steeped in kind of the policy discussion on on how to grow the population in this region. So a, probably a good starting point is, uh, so what is the general history of population growth here, the kind of uh, ups and downs? So if you don't mind me starting, Don, um, the 2001 census was the first time in history that New Brunswick actually had a smaller population than it did five years earlier. So that's 20 years ago. Uh, And that was when we first in this province started having a conversation about what that actually meant. There was something called the Population Growth Secretariat that was established right after that census. And people started to get a little nervous, but I don't think it really started to gain traction as an issue until literally four or five years ago when we started to see a big increase in the number of immigrants because the workforce impacts really started to hit us within the last five, six years. So 10 years ago, we had the trucking industry and the fish processing industry saying it was getting almost impossible to find workers. But by about four or five years ago, that was now, that became just about every industry. And that's when I think it became much more of a front burner issue for governments. And we've seen, certainly in New Brunswick, we've seen a big big increase in the focus on growing the population in the last four or five years. I think the uh, the 2016 census was a key turning point uh, on the discussion of population in our region. Um, I think it really focused on the challenges that we had. And uh, if you look at the historical data going back uh, to the 1950s, uh, our populations in this region were growing, albeit at a smaller rate than the Canadian population, up until about the mid the late 90s, uh, corresponding with the uh, kind of the end of the baby boomers having babies. Uh, and then it's flattened out for most of the region. Uh, and it wasn't until the last four or five years that we've seen some real uh, gains uh, in population for at least uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. PEI uh, had a good record of growing almost throughout this period. Uh, but in uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we they hit a their peak population was back in the 80s, and then something really terrible happened to them called the collapse of the fishery. They lost a lot of people in that period. They've never recovered from that period, and in fact, uh, they're the only part of the region that continues to lose population. Their population is now smaller than it was in the 2016 census. So they're in a bit of a different situation than the, than the maritime provinces. But it's clear that uh, we've, got a, we've got lots of uh, opportunity 
and a need to grow population still uh, across the region. Maybe not as much in PEI, which is hitting it out of the ballpark when it comes to growing their population, but certainly for the rest of the region. I'm curious about what role do, do changing fertility rates play in, in, in this discussion? Well, it's a, it's a critical sort of underlying issue. So in 1973, the median age in the region was around 23 years, meaning half the population was under the age of 23, uh, and now it's pushing 50. We'll see what, it, what the census shows us um, later this year. So that obviously has fundamentally shifted. So you have two things going on. One is you have um, families are getting smaller. And because we're aging, there's less children. So that's really driving a lot of the underlying reason why we're talking now about immigration and we're talking about trying to attract external population to meet our workforce needs because we we got old in a hurry. When I started in economic development in the early 90s, we were a rel- still a relatively young region, uh, median age in the, in the sort of early to mid-30s. But now, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, compared to the rest of North America, we're well above average in terms of our median age. Compared to Europe, we're actually younger, uh, uh, Western Europe, but uh, we certainly, that the fertility rates and the aging population is very much driving the conversation about the need to grow population. Right. So it's the, the gains that the, the rest of the, of the country, especially the bigger urban centers, it, they would have relatively the same fertility rates. It's their population growth would be driven mainly through immigration. That's right. And just to put a little emphasis on the numbers needed to replace your population, the number I think is 2.2 per female uh, to just keep the population at the same level. Uh, in our region, uh, we're generally, I think, David, around 1.5 or even less in some cases. So, it's impossible for us to replace our population without attracting people from elsewhere. And of course that has a big impact on uh, labor availability. And in fact, between 2015 and 2030, it's estimated that there's going to be nearly 260,000 more Atlantic Canadians who will have reached the age of retirement at 65 years. And so the challenge to replace that big group of baby boomers of which I'm one, uh, is really going to be extra challenging over the next uh, 10 or 15 years. Yeah, so there was a guy by the name of David Foote, and I'm sure Don and Mark, you remember him back in the 90s, who predicted this was going to happen. And of course, literally, if you look at the immigration numbers, right after David Foote's uh, prognostications on this subject, you started to see immigration numbers going up across the country. 75,000, 100,000 a year, 125,000 a year, 150. They just weren't coming here. Uh, uh, and again, we, we'll talk about PEI as we go through this. But uh, yeah, so now we're saying we're up to almost 400,000 now a year in expected immigrants, uh, if you include temporary foreign workers. And uh, we're going to have to see our share uh, of that, uh, that inward flow to the country to meet our workforce needs moving forward. And I just want to add another perspective because I don't think people understand this. And I believe the you know politicians in general, and political parties in this region have really had no uh, real understanding of the challenges that we face economically as a result of our population issue. To uh, put it in perspective, in the, in the uh, early 70s, uh, Atlantic Canada represented uh, almost 10% of the population. You know, so that's 50 years ago. 
and now we, we represent only a little over 6%. So we've become a much smaller part of Canada uh, over that period of time. And the, the other problem that goes along with that, and we'll talk about that probably in a minute, is uh, the size of our economy relative to the rest of the country has shrunk uh, almost in lockstep with the population challenge. And uh, there is a correlation that uh, that's really important in terms of population growth and uh, economic growth that uh, I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. Well, why don't we jump right there, Don? Like, why why is this so important in terms of uh, the economy and, and development in the region? Well, let me, <laughs> this is going to be a numbers program, but we want to set the context for the next couple of uh, podcasts where we'll be taking a look at uh, recruitment and attraction of newcomers to our region and retention of those people. Um so our economy back only in 2000 represented a little over 8% of the Canadian economy. And uh, uh, as of last year, it was down to 6%. Now, over that period of time, almost 20 years, the Canadian economy grew 73%. The Atlantic Canadian economy grew 31%. So that's a big difference. I used to think that our economy was not strong enough to support more population. Now I have the other view. I think that, you know, it's uh, build it and they will come uh, or they will come when we build it kind of situation. But I, I, I think it, that population growth uh, contributes significantly to economic growth. And we have not had that same advantage in this region for a very long time. And we're starting to see in a really good uh, example of what happens when you do grow your population at a, at a pretty good clip. And that, that uh, example is in, in Prince Edward Island that has really outperformed the Canadian economy over the last decade or so, largely based on the fact that it's grown its population almost as fast as anywhere else in the country. And so in, ter- in that PEI example, and it's you, David, or for you, Don, how, how does that look on, on the ground? Is it like increased business activity that, that's made possible by that growing population? Or are they sort of interdependent? So I, I think there's a few things. One is a lot of the immigration to PEI was more business or entrepreneurial class. So there's a, there's a, there's a mix there, but it was uh, heavily skewed toward businesses. And so you saw a lot of uh, businesses being started up from international entrepreneurs. A lot of businesses were taken over, um, uh, you know, uh, by uh, Cavendish, for example. Half of the businesses now in Cavendish, I'm told, are owned by immigrant entrepreneurs. So I think it's a mix of entrepreneurs and workforce. But basically what it did is, as Don said, combined, it actually led to very strong population growth. And interestingly enough, the median age on PEI has been going down every year for the last five. So it's actually getting younger, which is exactly bending that curve is exactly what we need to do uh, in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. And in fact, we have started to, to peak and started to go down, I think, in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia too, if, if the annual estimates are to be uh, believed. I think the other thing is, that if I could just jump in, uh, Mark, that I think is important to understand is that if you increase your population by the average Canadian population growth over the last 60 years of 1%, you have 1% more people needing to be housed, to be fed, and and, and, and all the other uh, support uh, you know, me- mechanisms to keep people living uh, properly. So it grows the, the size of the economy. 
it grows the size of the economy in terms of people who go to movies and buy gas and all the other consumer uh, spending that happens. And if you look at a place like um, Charlottetown as, as an example right now, their population uh, increase is leading to a very, very hot construction sector for housing. And of course, people who you know make lumber and 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 sell furniture and all those other things, of course, are going to benefit by having more people living in that province. But I, I think the problem here historically, Mark, has been that you know older Atlantic Canadians don't really care about growth because they're either retired or or in the next five or ten years will be retired. So why does growth matter to them? And young people actually don't particularly like growth either because they're worried it's going to destroy the planet. So one of the things I think we've had to do is talk about specifically why Atlantic Canada has to grow its population, not just for the fun of it or not just to keep up with Ontario, but because we are really talking about a fiscal crisis for our provincial governments. If we want to properly fund health care, we're going to have to have organic economic growth. We can't raise tax rates much higher, I would argue. Uh, the federal government has, you know, piles money down here, but I don't think there's a lot more coming from that source. So if you want to be able to pay for good quality health care and good quality public services, I think we're going to have to have, you know, uh, uh, more economic growth. So that's only my message is that, yes, I've always liked growth as a concept, economic growth, but you need to translate that to <clears throat> things that matter. Uh, to everyday average New Brunswickers or Atlantic Canadians, or it will not translate into politics. Because now you see it. You see the politicians all across this region uh, interested in population growth because they have business owners calling them up on a Thursday night and saying, I can't find workers. And now that it's reached that level of criticality around the region, you're starting to get a political drive to grow the population all across the region. I would also say that uh, for a long time, we had essentially the same number of taxpayers paying an ever-increasing uh, tax bill. And uh, that's that's why we have the largest taxes, highest taxes in the country, because we've been having the same pool of taxpayers carry an ever-increasing tax load. And for anybody who's just a, you know, a, a regular taxpayer out there, the good news is that having more people share that load will at least reduce the pace of increase of taxes in the future. But uh, David's quite right. Uh, healthcare, you know, because of our aging population, is going to be disproportionately more costly for this region than it is elsewhere. And there's really no means of paying that for that uh, with the current tax pool, pool of taxpayers uh, without increasing the number in that pool. And the average person over the age of 65, Don was saying this is going to be a numbers-oriented podcast, and he's right, gall darn it, we're both into the numbers. But the average taxpayer over the age of 65 pays as much income tax as the average person between the ages of 25 and 34. So your top tax-paying years are between the ages of 40, uh, 45 and 54. And so we need more taxpayers at their top year of paying taxes or their top tax-paying years because as the rest of us retire, we're going to be paying a lot less taxes. And, I, you know, Don, Don Mills excluded. But the rest of us, we're going to be paying a lot less taxes. <laughs> yeah, no, and we know, of course, uh, you know, the companies know 
you know, firsthand, a lot of the companies in the region know how difficult it is uh, to find workers in, in various sectors and with various skill sets. And uh, Don, I'd, I'd be curious to know your view in terms of, you know, tracking attitudes in the region over the decades. Are, are we still facing the, the challenge of, because the, you, you still hear that, that mindset of immigrants will come in, take jobs. There, there, it's still, there's still echoes of that. Are in, in, in kind of your sense of things, has that changed and shifted a lot over time? Is that very much a minority in the, of the population that, that believes that we don't need immigrants because people here can't find jobs? Uh, it's still a big number. I don't know what the real number would be uh, uh, as we speak right now. But as an example, um, we used to ask the question, you know, do we need uh, more immigrants, about the same number of immigrants or fewer immigrants coming into each of the four Atlantic provinces? And the, and the majority wanted the same same small number that, that we currently have or fewer. And uh, the only thing that I saw over the last five years is a, is a sort of steady increase in the people who said more, but it's never reached 50%. Uh, so there still is a big uh, educational uh, job to be done. And by the way, I don't think that this, this is just the government's responsibility. I really believe the private sector needs to step up and play a part in educating the public about uh, the value of immigrants, the need for uh, to attract more uh, labor to this uh, region to keep our economy going, and to lead in that regard by providing opportunities for newcomers coming to our region. And uh, we're going to talk about some of those uh, examples in, 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 in coming podcasts. But I think that the role of the private sector uh, is really critical here. And we need to, we need to hold them more accountable to uh, supporting the, the efforts that the public sector is doing. But the last time, I'll take New Brunswick as an example, the last time New Brunswick had a uh, serious flow of inward migration from immigrants was the 1850s. So your parents don't remember that, and their parents don't remember that, and their parents' parents don't remember that. So we do not have now that Halifax has had a fairly good flow, a low-level flow for many years. But if you go into smaller communities around Atlantic Canada, there's no recent tradition of immigration. But there was originally, right, the Scots came, the Irish came, the Germans came, et cetera, et cetera, the French came. Uh, but we haven't had a recent tradition and we need to be educating people that, you know, historically this happened and now we're at a point in our development as a jurisdiction, as a region, where we're going to have to see a flow of one, one and a half, maybe even 2% of the population every year coming in, in order to meet these uh, demographic uh, realities. And in fact, uh, we mentioned this in the last podcast and I think it's, it bears repeating that the percentage of people living in our region who uh, were born in another country is uh, very low. It ranges between 3 and 6%, I think, of uh, the, the four Atlantic provinces. Uh, and the last census showed that we were at 22% nationally. And, and people may not realize that, but if you lived in Toronto, 50% of the people living in Toronto today were born in another country. Now, it's probably the most cosmopolitan, multiracial city in the world now. And uh, those people know how to live with diversity. Uh, we are still learning. <laughs> we have a lot to learn. Um, the, and one of the challenges is that a lot of the diversity that we currently have is is really confined to a, just a few communities. So get outside the six cities that we keep talking about, three cities in uh, New Brunswick, uh, 
you know, Charlottetown, St. John's and Halifax, you know, there's not a lot of exposure to people who look differently than you do uh, or have different uh, religions or languages. And so our ability to adapt and, and become, as I said before, not just friendly, but welcoming is really going to be key to keeping people that come here to remain here. When you say um, welcoming, not just friendly, what do you, what do you mean by that, Don? Well, I was thinking about this the other day based on our last podcast. And uh, I, I mentioned at that time that, you know, uh, the difference between being friendly uh, is not just being not mean to people, but actually inviting them into your homes, uh, making them your part of your friendship circles. Now, uh, the, the, the generation that I'm in and maybe you, the generation that you guys are in, I think it's too late for those generations. And the reason I say that is that it's a learned behavior. And I think we have to start in the school system with our kids. Our kids get exposed to people from different uh, parts of the world, uh, different religions, uh, different colors, and they make them, they, they develop their friendships early and they carry those friendships throughout life. It's very hard for, you know, boomers, for an example, to say, oh yeah, I got to go out and make sure I get a black friend into my circle or, you know, somebody from a, mu a Muslim uh, background. Into and It's hard to do. I think we're going to have to start in the grassroots, in the school systems, and hope that our kids develop a, um, you know, a lifestyle that is inclusive because they they've lived with it, and it's not it, it's not it's not anything to be afraid of. I was thinking uh, I was thinking of that that kind of point um, when I was interviewing I was interviewing this couple from Ontario, and uh, I was asking about them about how they've been able to integrate into St. John, especially during a pandemic, right? Cause it's one thing to yeah. move here from Ontario or move here from, uh, you know, Europe or a country in Asia or in Africa in regular times, <laughs> but super challenging during pandemic. And the reason why I mentioned that is I, I was asking, uh, Jordan Owens, the guy I was interviewing, uh, so how did you uh, integrate here? And he had played uh, pro hockey, at AHL, OHL, and in Europe and in Australia. And so his cultural touch point was hockey, right? So he immediately got invited to, you know, join a men's league, right? But when you talk about those those social bonds that we have, often it's it's those common cultural touch points we have. And, and we forget that people moving from other countries, you just, you have to find your own ways of connecting, right? That, that take a little bit more work. Um, Obviously, food is a natural one, so having a meal. But I, but I did I did that did strike me as as interesting as a small anecdotal example. So one of the interesting things I did the uh, immigration strategy for Greater Moncton a few years ago. And one of the interesting things was that most of the immigrants coming into this community have a higher level of religious affiliation. So you saw a lot of them: the Filipinos, the Koreans, and so on, uh, the Brazilians ending up in the Catholic Church or the Baptist Church or the United Church or whatever, it didn't matter. But the churches became this very interesting receptor for immigrants and for building those kind of social networks that, that are key to long-term retention. So I think we underestimate, I think, the role of these intermediaries, whether it's churches or so, you know, curling clubs or hockey, as you mentioned earlier. But we once we find ways and be very deliberate about uh, uh, including newcomers into those social, those more informal social networks, 
I think then the friendship networks start to build and then hopefully the business uh, and professional networks on top of that. But right when they arrive, if you can get them integrated into these social networks, I think that's a, that's a big uh a big way, a big bonus in terms of trying to retain them in your community. Now, I've said it all along. The biggest way to retain them is the job. Uh, most immigrants, if they're working at a job that are, it's beneath their skill or their uh, income expectations, it's going to be very, very hard to retain them. But once they're into a role that they feel is aligned with their skills and interests uh, and income expectations, then you have to look at these broader issues like uh, social uh, and professional networks. Yeah, one thing that I would mention as well on the um, issue of retention uh, and getting uh, get, getting that first job is uh, language is a, usually a big barrier for uh, people coming from different parts of the world. <clears throat> and I certainly saw it in my own uh, career that uh, they, they could be really qualified, but the ability to communicate is, is a bit of a restraint uh, for them getting their, their own jobs. And one of the podcasts coming up, we're going to be talking with uh, Jennifer Watts, who's the CEO of the Immigration Settlement Association of Nova Scotia. And we'll be talking about some of the programs that they put in place to try to uh, mitigate that, that uh, barrier to employment. And, uh, but at the same time, there's, uh, there's lots of good things going on in our region. I think, uh, uh, and to David's point, there, I, I may have this, the name of this company wrong, but I think there's a company called Red Star Fish fisheries in uh, Tignish uh, PEI, uh, who have, uh, I believe they've recruited mainly Filipinos to that community, but they've been incredibly successful at getting those people to integrate into this, into their community, uh, buy homes and become, uh, as David mentioned, very active in the church. In fact, the church attendance is way up in Tignish as a result of of that community kind of rallying around that as a, an institution to bring people together. So there are some really good examples that we want to point out of uh, success in terms of making sure that, uh, that, uh, that works uh, for everybody, both newcomers and, and people who, uh, who live in their own communities. And I think uh, showcase, showcasing those examples too of, of people who move here and, and build great lives, I think is, is an important part of it. I know, I know you guys are the numbers guys. And I'm the I'm the anecdote guy. Um, I, I had a, a, a conversation, uh, podcast conversation with uh, Tarek Haddad from Peace by Chocolate several weeks ago uh, on on uh, the Home Office podcast, and it, it, it was such an impressive example of you know a, a family that that moved to Anaganish, you know, from Syria, um, and it, it came into the community and and built a successful business and basically rebuilt one that they'd had in in Syria in a different form here in Canada. But I, I was really impressed by the way in which the community rallied around th those, that family and helped them build that company um, back up again. And it seems, and I'd be curious well, to know your you know, there's, your I have another example, but, Mark, that, uh, that is it, it's a smaller level, but another Syrian uh, success story um, and happens to do with uh, a barber that I discovered who's running a, a, a shop in downtown Halifax is called Mr. Mustache. He's got, uh, he's got five chairs in his, in his uh, shop. And I think he's got, uh, if not three, uh, four other Syrians working. 
So there's a there's another success story. It's much lower profile, but at the same level of, of coming in, creating employment uh, for himself and others from his community. He was telling me that in Halifax there is uh, he thinks there's a hundred uh, Syrian families. So that would be with their number of they have, tend to have more kids. So that's probably 250 at least, you know, communities. So now that critical mass, that Syrian critical mass of families, they support each other, right? They help each other. He was saying that he doesn't know anybody in that community who's not working or who has not started their own business. You know, that's that's success. Yeah, I mean, we'll see when the census numbers come out next year how many of the Syrian refugees we were able to retain in this region. Uh, that was a bit of an outlier, right? We had this massive commitment from the federal government to bring I forget what it was, 50,000 or 25,000 or 100,000, I forget what it was, but we ended up taking a very large share of those in Atlantic Canada, in the Maritimes particularly, um, and I hope that many of them did retain. We hear lots of good stories like the ones you guys have shared, uh, but we'll be able to tell next year just how many of those refugees uh, did attach and stay uh, in our communities and region. You know, listening to you guys share share stories, uh, and, you know, and I have my own about about you know successful immigrants here uh, who have been able to build a good life, it it makes me feel like um, you know in in the bigger regions uh, immigrants they naturally flock towards those places and that's not just um, you know from other countries but young people from other provinces and families that go to the larger centers. Is there an element of we just have to we have to hustle harder and work harder to? integrate people into our communities and pay extra special uh, attention to them in a way that you don't necessarily have to in the larger centers because people are finding their own natural communities. Well, I, I, you know, again, just to sort of follow up on my previous comment, uh, having uh, community support from your own community, wherever you come from, is a great way of getting stickiness for people coming into a community. And we don't have a lot of what I call critical mass of, um, of these communities uh, across the region. Um, there are some good examples. If you look at, for an, for an example, the Lebanese community in, uh, in Halifax, it's, it's, you know, it's fairly large, thousands of people now in that community. A big part of our uh, development community, by the way, they're, they're, they tend to be the, the, the community that's building our city out uh, mostly, create hundreds of jobs and, uh, and, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of economic activity. But that community actually uh, reaches back into Lebanon to help other people uh, coming into Halifax. They, they be, they're, they're kind of their own recruitment agency for new people coming into uh, Halifax, and but that's because they have critical mass. You know, they that that community built an, uh, an amazing church for the Lebanese community in the center of the city. You know, and that's what that's that's what can happen when you get critical mass. And we're a long way from critical mass in some on some on some key uh, communities that we're trying to keep here. So I think that that's really important. Uh, I think uh, changing our attitudes is, is going to be very important. Having leadership from the private sector is going to be very important for a success over the long term. But, you know, we're starting to see some signs of progress on each of those. Yeah, I mean, you have to think about the national perspective here, Mark. The 
and I've looked at some of these numbers, I mean, the reality is we talk about immigration in Ontario. That's really immigration into Toronto uh, and secondarily Ottawa. If you look at these uh, sort of mid-sized cities like Kingston and, and uh, you know, Hamilton and London and these places, very relatively low levels of immigration. In fact, the immigration rate in Halifax and Moncton now has surpassed most uh, throughout the country, most other urban centers. Now, you did see a wave uh, as Saskatchewan and Manitoba started to heat up the economies in the last decade or so. You did start to see significant immigration into secondary cities like Brandon, Manitoba, Mexicans coming in to work in the meatpacking industry and so on. But the reality is this is a national issue. We're going to have to start seeing much more of a diffusion of our immigrant population across the country uh, than we've seen historically. And I think the federal government realizes that. uh, And that's why they've been... um, you know, increasing the numbers every year, even after the pandemic, they added an additional boost in 2021 because they see it. We need them in Sarnia. We need newcomers in Brandon. We need newcomers in, you know, all parts of the country, including our smaller cities and rural areas. And, you know, the challenge, Mark, uh, uh, as we uh, mentioned in the past, is that Uh, Immigrants are coming in only to a limited number of communities in Atlantic Canada. The six cities that we've talked, keep talking about, they, they've got at least 80% of the immigrants coming in. And so the the dispersion of immigrants uh, throughout the region uh, uh, is going to be a challenge. And and there's parts of the region that are going to need labor force as much as anybody else. And that's going to be uh, that's going to be very hard for some communities. Um, and one of the things that I, I've been suggesting, recommending, is that every community of size, and, and you know, I keep talking about the urban communities of Atlantic Canada, of which there are nearly thirty. And a, you know, an urban community, in my own mind, would be uh, a community with at least five thousand people living in it. So it has some critical mass. It usually has a post-secondary institution, regional health facilities and, you know, uh, retail uh, destination for the surrounding communities. Each of those communities really need to figure out what their population growth strategy is. They need to actually work on it. They can't just wait for it to happen. They need to have a strategy. And the the communities that have uh, done that, Moncton is a good example. Um, They actually have, uh, they have an immigration officer, if I'm not mistaken, David, uh, you know, working full time on this, it's you know they and and they're showing really good success. Uh, the city of Saint Saint John, who uh, suffered uh, population loss, the only city in Canada to do so in 2016 census, um, they have a population strategy and they had a population uh, uh, manager. Uh, so every community needs to, uh, who's interested in their labor force requirements uh, have to have uh, a similar. Uh, population strategy. It's not that difficult to do, but you actually have to work on it. It doesn't happen, you know, by magic. What about programs like the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program? Can you talk a little bit about that and and, and the impact, you know, formal programs like that can have? So in 2015, when I went into government, one of the first things I wanted to do was make the case that we needed flexibility on the types of immigrants that could come. So historically, we've had a point systems in Canada where if you had two PhDs, you spoke French and English, uh, you know, you had a much better chance of getting into the country uh, because you had a, more points. And uh, what I argued is we need to get off the point system and we need to be able to have a flexible immigration system so that if you need truck drivers or fish plant workers, you can bring them in. And so the purpose of the AIPP 
and we we wrote a white paper at the at, at that time that was fed into that system and became i think the aipp the idea was to have, be much more flexible and that's what the aipp does it's not perfect but it does make it easier for uh, employers to recruit workers into a broad range of sectors and it's not there's no points requirement. Uh, obviously, they have to speak a, a minimum level of English or French, and there's other requirements there. They have to have at least high school for most uh, occupations, not all. Uh, but it's a, been a much better uh, way of providing flexibility, and I think it has helped. It's been one of the reasons why the numbers have been boosted, uh, along with the postgraduate work permit. It's another one of the reasons why uh, we've seen an increase in immigration into the region. I, I would just add that uh, you know uh, one of the uh, one of the challenges that our current system in Canada has that really favors obviously skilled workers. Yet what we're finding is that a lot of uh, more unskilled jobs are going uh, unfilled because uh, you know native uh, native uh, Canadians uh, prefer not to work in those uh, in those sectors. And you know, I think that there's there's got to be some consideration to maybe uh, having a stream of uh, unskilled workers, much like our, you know, forefathers were when they came to this country. They didn't have any skills. They just were prepared to work hard and to, you know, get ahead over time. That maybe that there's a there's an opportunity to, uh, to take a look at that stream uh, as well. Yeah, so the province of New Brunswick is using the provincial nominee program more for that. So if you need oh, okay. loggers... Uh, but I think you're right. In general, that is a bit of a gap. Uh, the employers have been using the temporary foreign workers program as one way to do that. But provincial nominee programs are very flexible. The province has control over that. Uh, and in some cases, they have been using that to fill some of these lower skilled uh, requirements. And that's a shift, right, David? Because, I mean, even when you mentioned the provincial nominee program, it, it, as it was originally conceived, it was, it was meant to bring, designed to bring in uh, potential business owners, right? And highly skilled professionals, yeah. It was uh, basically the provinces were saying, look, we want control over some of the immigration. And so the, they were given a certain number every year, which is actually interesting. I don't know if you, Don, know the history of that, but that's why PEI did so well. Because in 2010, they had asked for a much larger number of nominees and they got it. And then the federal government froze everybody else at their current level. Uh, so it was much harder for Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland and Labrador uh, to bring in workers under the old system, as I said before, the AIPP and other programs have helped since then. Uh, but Nova, uh, for whatever reason, PEI had grabbed this relatively high uh, number of provincial nominees in 2010, and that drove much of their growth. And, and again, it was kind of skewed toward uh, business immigrants for that reason. Didn't something like that similar happen in, in Saskatchewan, David, as well? It's possible. I don't. I don't know the Saskatchewan story, but it is possible. Yeah. I know the federal government started to crack down on the increasing provincial nominee numbers because they didn't want to give all the control to the provinces. So the provinces would like them all, right? They'd like Ontario would say we want the 150,000 that come in every year. We want full control. We want that to be through our provincial nominee program. But the federal government said absolutely not. So they've allowed the provinces to have uh, some share through the nominee program, provincial nominee programs, and they've given them more input into the other categories like AIPP, but the federal government still wants to control, uh, you know, the, a large share of the folks that flow into this country every year through, uh, th through federal programs. It's interesting because I was going to ask about uh, the PEI example and, and what, what allowed uh, PEI to move ahead faster than some of the other Atlantic provinces. So it's, it's connected to 
that issue of kind of opening things up uh, around that 2010 period? That's correct. And we'll have on this podcast in the future, we will have experts in the immigration system uh, on to talk about that in greater detail. Don and I are at a little bit of a 50,000 foot level when it comes to these things, but we will certainly have experts on in the coming months uh, to help the listeners understand some of those uh, fine grain things. Although I'll tell you, I've been floating in and around immigration now for 15 years, and it's a pretty Byzantine uh, uh, system. Uh, how people get in, uh, the, how decisions are made, uh, all of these other things are pretty complicated, but I, I would say that they've been getting easier uh, in the last few years. So we've been talking, you know, mostly about immigrants, uh, you know, from other countries. Uh, how important is the conversation around uh, people from moving from other parts of the country into here? And and uh, and also on that level, how, how challenging is growing the population going to be coming out of the pandemic? Well, that's all. Lots of good material to go in there. I think uh, what I would say is that our best... Uh, if you look at the Canadian marketplace, our, our objective needs to be that we have more people coming than going, you know, to reverse what has been more people going than coming for a long time. And there is already good signs of that. If you look at Halifax, for an example, the retention of young people has been remarkably high over the last four or five years as the economy has picked up. People don't have to move away for jobs and they end up staying here. I think that that's a good outcome. But the other thing that's happening, and I've, I've heard it anecdotally through my, my, my children, is that their friends now want to come back home. And that will be the first indication that things are going in the right direction. When people, we start to repatriate the people who uh, were born here and had to go somewhere else for jobs and, and want to come back. So I think we're already starting to see that. Uh, we're going to see a lot more of that. And uh, uh, I think that that's going to be helpful. But it will never come close, never come close to what immigration is going to do. Right now, immigration accounts for a little over 80% of population growth in this country. It's expected within the next 10 years, David, I think, to, to represent almost 100% of population growth. And it's really because, at least in our region, there are more people die every day than are being born. And that's the reality. I think that might be starting to be reversed, by the way, in PEI because of their success on the immigration front. But still... Uh, you know, birth rates are not going to not going to do much. Um, and in fact, if if, if anybody's read the book uh, by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson called Empty Planet, one of the challenges that's coming ahead is that we're not going to we're not going to hit the kind of peak population numbers that people have been talking about, you know, 11 or 12 billion people by the end of the century. Uh, in fact, peak po population in the world, it's probably going to happen in the next uh, 30 years or or by the mid-century, I think, based on their work, which means that, you know, the same problem that we have in, in North America of low birth rates uh, with women making more decisions about wanting to have careers uh, will reduce birth rate worldwide. Uh, and it will make actually the job of uh, attracting immigrants much more competitive. We're not going to have the choice of the of, of that we have today. The, the people will be able to not not move somewhere else, but stay in their own countries as the population comes under control. And there's lots of good examples about that. If you read the book, it's a really excellent book. But I'm not greedy, Don. I just want about say 250,000 of those global migrants 
to land in New Brunswick over the next 20 years or so. So that's a relatively small number. If you think about the global flow, I'm not greedy. I'll take maybe 350 in Nova Scotia, maybe another 50 or 60 in PEI, and we'll see what we need in Newfoundland and Labrador. But I think you're absolutely right about that. But I still think in the global context, we can continue to position this region as a great place to live, as a, as a moderate, increasingly moderate climate with low crime rates, reasonable cost of living, lots of spread out spaces. Our, our population density is very, very low. The chances of natural disasters are very low here. So I think we can continue to position this region and we only need a relatively small share of the global migration flow. So yes, it will be uh, increasing competition. I think increasing competition in Canada. I think our competition is going to be Sarnia uh, and Brandon as much as it is uh, in places in the U.S. and Europe. But uh, I think you're absolutely right. More competition, but I'm not greedy. We just need a very small share of that global flow. Yeah, I'm working on a future column for the newspapers, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, population uh, for some of the urban centers. And it's really interesting um, what the what could happen by the end of the century if we just have uh, growth of one, 1.2% uh, uh, per year in our urban areas, our major urban areas. So just as an example, Halifax could become the first Atlantic Canadian city with a million people living in the city by the turn of the century, just by doing what it's doing right now. Same number that it's attracting today, just continuing that trend for the rest of the century. That seems outrageous to think that, but uh, that would be, I think that would be good for the whole region if that were to happen. And that's just an example of what could happen in each of the other uh, kind of more major ur urban areas in Atlantic Canada. But in a historical context, uh, if we hadn't joined Canada, it's arguable that Halifax would have been Boston, right? Because if you think about it geographically and so on. So, you know, there it's always good to do this sort of historical revisionism and think, well, what if, <laughs> but I think, you know, you could easily argue that Halifax would have been Boston or something similar to Boston and Moncton, I don't know, might've been Hartford, but those days are behind us. But I think moving forward, if we have a focus on population growth, uh, there's no reason to think that Halifax couldn't be a million population uh, by 2100. I don't look that far ahead. I'm thinking New Brunswick should have a million people by 2040. Uh, and I think that's reasonable. If you look at the numbers, it will require an aggressive population growth, but only about the same growth rate that we saw back in the 70s. So it's not like we're, it's even unprecedented in the context of Atlantic Canada. Uh, now, that all growth was, was fueled, as Don said, by the boomers and having children. And, and this new wave of growth is going to have to be through migration. But I think it's certainly eminently doable, uh, but it requires the political will and the public will uh, to make it happen. It, it, does it also involve changing, you know, our own attitudes and, and the attitudes of people from outside about the region itself and, and the, you know, and the benefits of and strengths of living here? Well, I think that the pandemic has really been a big uh, help in that regard. I think we've got a national profile from the way that we've managed the pandemic. I think people have looked look at us in a different way than they did before the pandemic. I think they're starting to see uh, places like Halifax and Moncton and Charlottetown in a different light. Um, I, I, you know, maybe I'm a bit biased, but I think Halifax is the future city of the future in Canada. I really do. I think it will be one of the most attractive places to, to live in the country uh, on a smaller scale. Um, and we have we have smaller cities in the region that are equally attractive for people 
looking for a lifestyle that is uh, closer to nature, you know, safer in many ways, uh, more more traditional in terms of uh, lifestyle uh, choices. And, uh, you know, I think that it's all upside for us right now. I believe it's all upside. And uh, we just need to take advantage of this moment. But I do think you have to, there has to be some effort to kind of control the national narrative because we do know that immigrants are searching the internet when they're looking for places to move. Uh, and certainly when Halifax comes up now as the number one place to live in Canada in this new McLean survey, that can't be a bad thing. Although last year when Halifax was 131st, uh, my folks, uh, my friends in the Halifax weren't exactly touting 131st, uh, but they changed <laughs> the methodology this year. Halifax rockets to the top, uh, 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 Fredericton and Moncton are in the top 10. Uh, that's good, right? So historically, Mark, to your point, I think anytime you read about uh, this region in the Globe and Mail, it tended to be negative uh, because that's news, right? There's no news down in Atlantic Canada unless somebody gets shot or some plant closes or something like that. So I think moving forward, I think it is wise to have a little bit more control or try to have a little bit more control over the national narrative about the good things that are happening down here. And I think with the internet, social media, and other sources now, you can control that narrative. I mean, Huddle is a really good example of a, of a media organization that said, we're going to start focusing on what's happening, the good stories that are happening around industry in Atlantic Canada. Uh, it's been a good addition to the media landscape in this region. And I think that kind of thing is important moving forward because there's lots of bad things that are happening. Those stories need to be told, no doubt. But the good stories need to be told as well. Is the changing, of course, there's conversations we're having in the pandemic around the changing, you know, nature of work. Uh, and, and one of the big conversations is around the ability to work remotely, whether you're living in your own community and you can work more at a home and balance it with being at the office or you're trying to pitch the Maritimes as a, as a, a place to live and place to move to because you could work remotely here and enjoy the lifestyle and also enjoy the lower cost of living. And I know you guys are numbers guys and we're, we're, you know, we're in the middle of this right now, but does the changing nature of, of, of work have the potential to benefit the region in the long run? I, I know we don't necessarily have the numbers now to tell us that story, uh, but is there real possibility there? If you look at the Ernst and Young personal income tax tables, if you make 50, 60, 70, $80,000 a year, you're not going to notice much of a change in your in your tax bill when you move here. But if you're earning $200,000 a year, you are going to, depending on where you come from, if you come from Calgary, for example, you're going to notice a big increase in your tax bill. So, And you're also going to notice that you're paying 15% HST on all your purchases. So I think if you're trying to attract high income professionals from the rest of the country, you do have to start thinking about tax rates, even uh, in New Brunswick, particularly, property tax rates are much higher here than they are in most of the country. Now, because assessed values are lower, at the end of the day, your tax bill might not be much higher here. But that's quite a sticker shock when people come down here and they, and they have a house that's valued a third of what it was in Toronto, but they're actually paying more in property taxes. So I think I, I'm very excited to see how these initiatives play out in terms of trying to attract remote workers from the rest of the country. But I do think it does necessitate a look at tax rates in a way that we haven't done in the past. And I'm not sure we can change that. You start reducing the marginal tax rates on the high income earners and all the doctors and lawyers in Atlantic Canada, you know, you're going to really took a, put a, take a, a big bite out of your tax uh, taxes collected as provincial governments. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you're going to move here, yeah, you're going to have lower housing costs, but if you're paying 
10 or 15 or 20,000 more a year every year in income tax, maybe that's not going to be good enough for you uh, when you're looking at alternatives like moving to Red Deer instead of Calgary. Yeah, there's no doubt that we're, we're not competitive on the tax side uh, for high income earners. But on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, that's not who's moving here right now uh, for remote learning opportunities. You're not getting the executive level. You're getting the mid-level people, uh, which is great. Uh, Middle-class uh, households who are finding it cheaper, frankly, to buy homes here. And they're not going to be hit, as David mentioned, by the income, by, by tax rates as much. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, the overall uh, tax competitiveness of this region has always been a problem. And uh, that's because, as I mentioned earlier, we had the same pool of people paying the taxes. It's, uh, you know, there's only, you know, so many people to, to pay the tax uh, bills and, that, and it's going to make it high, higher here as a result. Now, you guys are uh, and we can we can we can close with this Um you guys are both sitting, Don. You're sitting in Halifax, uh, David. You're sitting in Moncton. You know, two two communities that have been they've grown a lot in in the last you know ten to fifteen years. And there's there's natural advantages around uh, you know why both communities have been able to grow so much. Um, what are but what are the takeaways for you guys? The key takeaways around the things that communities really need to be doing if rural you know, rural towns in, in Nova Scotia and PEI and Newfoundland and, and New Brunswick, uh, and then even some of the, some of the smaller cities that aren't, aren't growing as fast. I, I would just say the, bi- the biggest thing about numbers is that, is that it's all relative. So, for example, 50 immigrants in Chipman, the village of Chipman, is a huge number, a very interesting number, and probably the number they're going to need over the next few years, Right. Whereas 50 in Halifax is, is not even a week's number of immigrants every year or something along those lines. So I think it's all about scale. And so what I would say is, and what we've been trying to say here in New Brunswick is, every community needs to sort of come up with an estimate of what they think the need is going to be. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. But based on their age of their population, the structure of their industry, you know, the relative expectation around retirements, what kind of population growth are they going to need? and then work backwards and develop a plan to get that done. So if I'm Woodstock and I need 300 people to be attracted to our, to my community over the next 10 years, how are we going to get that done? And I think that's doable. It's one thing to talk about how are we going to do flow, I don't know, 200,000 people into the region as a whole and some big number that seems unrealistic. But then if you look at it on a community by community basis, you know, we know Halifax can sustain its immigration levels. It's been sustaining that number. And Moncton is doing fairly well, as you say. So I think it almost sort of bubbles up from each community. What do we need in Miramichi? What do we need in Summerside? What do we need in Amherst? I'm doing some work in Cape Breton now. What do we need in Cape Breton? Uh, and then the national immigration totals should be an aggregation of all the, the regional totals around the country. And I think we can get there. Like I said, 50 in Chipman is doable. It, you can talk about what kind of housing you're going to need in Chipman. You can talk about what kind of support you need in the school system, you know, what kind of uh, uh, immigrant support around language, integration into social networks, but it's only 50 people. Yes, it's 50 people on a community of 400, but I still think if you look at it in absolute terms, that's a doable number. Yeah, I just I would just add this sort of final comment, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're going to spend an episode on this in the future, is that um, population growth uh, has largely been confined to urban areas all over the world, 
Um, each day and each week in China, I believe 100,000 people move into an urban center every, you know, every week. You know, so that the urbanization is happening uh, anyway. Uh, so the best thing that we can do for, uh, you know, places outside the six kind of cities that we've mentioned is to have that strategy on a, on an urban community basis. And there are about, uh, there's about 25 other urban areas that need to have a population strategy and not only just a population strategy, but an economic development strategy that is uh, customized for each of those communities. And I think if you do that, you can help build a bigger, better economy that can attract more people to those urban communities while supporting people who are living in nearby rural communities to allow them to continue to live there, but to commute to those nearby urban areas for jobs and amenities and services. I think that that's something that we need to have a serious conversation about in this region. If we want to distribute prosperity uh, to everybody throughout each of the four provinces. Well, thanks very much, guys. This is a great uh, primer conversation on this topic. And I, I mean, I look forward to the interviews you guys do in the next uh, in the next few weeks to kind of tease out some of these issues and conversations with uh, other leaders around the region. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. It's been uh, it's been fun. Thanks. Great. And I will look forward to hearing uh, the next podcast. next week. You've been listening to the second episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. And you could subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. We care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.